if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15 is where we'll pick up and we'll pray for Kenny. And, uh, <laughs> and we'll dive in. So, Lord, we thank you for this evening, for the chance to study your word. And as we dive into it, we pray, <clears throat> Lord, that you would take away anything that would hinder us from hearing from you. And Lord, speak to us, we pray, through your spirit and your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So, Kenny, go ahead and read through verse 20. (laughs) Read aloud. I'll take off the mic and hold it for you. Okay, yeah, that's probably good. Okay, go. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blasts of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophets, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Thanks, Scanny. Thank you. Appreciate you saving my voice a little. Let me get this back on. Okay, so setting the scene, remember last week when we finished, the Red Sea had been parted, the nation of Israel had crossed over, and the 
Pharaoh and his army had been swallowed up as the Red Sea closed back in on them. And there were some interesting points in there that we have to consider as we move into the passage for tonight. Um, You consider that the nation of Israel had pressed up against the Red Sea and they were in extreme danger of being overtaken, yet the Lord intervened. He intervened in such a way as to become their rear guard. And while he had led them as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, he became both in that instant. A cloud to hinder the Egyptians and a light or a pillar of fire to light the way as the nation of Israel um, was um, witnessing this miracle that the Lord was about to do um, through his servant Moses in the parting of the sea. And whenever I think of the parting of the sea, I'm always drawn to this one statement, and it's repeated many times, but I don't know that we ever stop to consider that it says over and over again, and the nation of Israel crossed over on dry land. On dry land. Now think about that for a minute. It had just been covered by water. It stands up in a heap, and they cross over on dry land. The detail to which God will go to, to take care of his people, to lead them and guide them to safety, to protect them and provide for them. It's astounding. It's one thing to stand the waters up. I mean, that in and of itself is enough of a miracle. But to make the passage one that was, in essence, that much more comfortable in that they weren't sloshing through puddles, but rather crossing over on dry land is nothing less than a testimony of God's care for his people. And I never want to forget that. I see that in my life. I see that in your lives as God ministers and I have the opportunity to interact with you. I see it in the ministry that I'm able to be a part of and blessed to be a part of. It's not just enough that God does the miraculous. He does the miraculous perfectly and takes it all the way beyond even what would be expected. He does so much more, exceedingly and abundantly more, than we can hope for and imagine. Nobody would have been complaining if they had to slosh through a few puddles as they stared at walls of water on each side. Yet God, in his love for them, took care of even that. As a result of that, we know the nation of Israel makes it to the other side and as they're taking their last steps out the water is closing in now on the Egyptian army such that they're swallowed up that elicits from Moses as we get in to chapter 15 it elicits a spontaneous writing of what we have as the first recorded psalm or poem 
that was sung in the Bible. I mean, we have a whole book of Psalms, and yet this would be the first one ever recorded. And it is a glorious and incredible um, praise psalm unto the Lord. And even before we would start to dissect it just a little bit, I think it speaks loudly to us in our own personal lives. What's our immediate response when God moves? When we see God step into our lives at a time when we need it, when he delivers, when he strengthens, when he provides. When all you have is hope, be, hope beyond hope that something could be done in God's steps in, what's your first immediate response? Because what this says to me is our first response should be to fall on our knees before God, or to dance and sing worship unto him for his goodness in his deliverance or his provision, or in him ministering to us in that moment as we need to be ministered to. Because what looked like to the nation of Israel a sure death for them, God entered in and provided victory over the enemy and set them free from that bondage. And Moses' immediate response, and it was, it must have been, Pam, I'm sure you've had this experience where you sit down at the piano never having have thought of a song and all of a sudden in like 10 minutes a song comes out. I've never experienced that. <laughs> but I'm sure you have. It had to be like that for Moses because this is the morning after they had entered in the night before. It wasn't like he said, oh, I'm going to take a week and reflect on this and come up with a great song for us to sing. It was an instantaneous Holy Spirit response to the movement of God. And that speaks to a heart that's thankful. It speaks to a heart that's grateful. It speaks to a heart that is in tune with the things of God such that there is nothing within that heart that thinks for one moment that it did it or deserved it. But rather, understanding I had no part in it, and I don't deserve it. In that condition, that heart elicits this song of praise and worship. It's really broken up into three parts. Um, the first part is, speaks of God's personal presence in my life, your life, their life in this moment. The second part speaks of God's power and protection. And the third part speaks of God's awe and wonder. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that Moses and the children of Israel sing this song, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse, the rider thrown into the sea. Look what it says in verse 2. And may this echo our understanding of who the Lord is. He is my strength. 
and my song. He is my strength and my song. I was talking to my brother. We share something in common. He and I go to the summit and we work out. But whatever strength he and I can muster up, that's nothing when it comes to living this life for the Lord. To live a life for the Lord in any way, shape, or form that will glorify him has to acknowledge he is the strength. He is the song that I sing. Like the worship song says, he's the very air. I breathe. He's everything. He has become my salvation. Has he become your salvation? And before you answer that, don't tell me yes because I prayed a sinner's prayer. Yes, I've received him as my Lord and Savior. I want to know today. Is he your salvation? Is he your salvation in every moment of every day of your life? Do you recognize that the fact that you have life at all is because of him? That he isn't, he didn't become your salvation back then. He has become my salvation in every moment of my life. I will not trust in myself at all, but only in him. As I've walked through the progression of this disease, The walls of my house have become my friend. They have become my salvation so many times. The other day, the wall wasn't there, and I fell out of Katie's office onto the floor because the wall wasn't there, my salvation which is just to be able to bounce on the walls or like I, in pitch dark, can tell you exactly where my dresser is, exactly how many steps to the doorknob. Is that how you live your life with the Lord spiritually? Is he your salvation? Like I can't trust in myself to make it down the hallway. I need those walls. I have a little strength, but he is fully strong. He is the one that upholds me. He is the one that gives me the ability to live every day. Is that the testimony of your relationship with the Lord? To experience the kinds of things that we see God do throughout throughout the Bible, it, it has to be that way. Yes, he's gracious and he does so much more for us than we deserve. My fear is what do I miss because I don't trust him more? What do I miss because I'm trusting in myself? He has to be your salvation, not just your ticket to heaven. But as the song says, the very air I breathe, the very strength that I have to take a step, the very um, movement of my vocal cords that I can speak, the very beating of my heart so I can 
uh, have his compassion. The very vision in my eyes that I might see as he sees. That he would be everything to me. He is my salvation. He is my God. And I will praise him. My father's God. And I will exalt him. What an incredible testimony in this moment of what's being sung to the Lord in response to how he's moved in their life. Are we drawn there? I think of the Lord's Prayer, you know, that model prayer. And the very first aspect of that prayer is if you use the moniker Acts, it's adoration. It's an acknowledgement of who God is before I get any further into this prayer. I want to establish who you are, who I'm not, and to give you that praise. Hallowed be your name, O Lord. And before they even speak in depth about the power and the protection and the awe and the wonder, there's an acknowledgement of the fact that you are God, you are my God, you are my salvation. I can't even breathe without you. Now you might be sitting there saying, I breathe just fine. Yeah, you breathe physically just fine. But are you being used of the Lord to breathe his grace and mercy upon people? You can't breathe that without him. So we see that in the first two verses. Then in verses 3, Through 10, we see God's power and protection um, being spoken of. He's a man of war, and oh, aren't we thankful that he is. The world looks at that and says, how can a God of love be a God of war? But that's really a lack of understanding of the spiritual warfare that goes on every single day around us. I'm thankful God is a God of war. I'm thankful that I don't even know how much he goes to war on my behalf. If I did, I'd probably be scared. How many times has he defended me in the spiritual realm without me realizing it? How many times have, has he protected me when I couldn't find my car keys and it delayed me three minutes only to come to an intersection to see an accident that happened two minutes before? How many times has God gone to war on my behalf and protected me when I didn't even realize it was happening. And notice it says the Lord all in caps throughout this psalm. By the way, I think it's 12 times in the 18 verses of this psalm that the, the word Lord capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is used, which is the name of God, Yahweh. I'm thinking back, Moses, did you do that on purpose? Wasn't it you that before you ever went back, you said, hey God, what am I supposed to tell them if they ask me your name? Oh, okay. I know he says, I am that I am. Tell him I am sent you. That's really Jehovah, 
It's really Yahweh. That's my name. Tell him I am. And so over and over again, he says, the Lord, the Lord. What he's really saying is Yahweh is a God of war in this sense. Who goes to battle on my, is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Goes on to talk again about how he protected them and provided victory. And then your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. Interesting, again, we've seen this in the New Testament a lot, but the identification of God with his people. In an earthly sense, the Egyptians were chasing the Israelites. They wanted to wipe the Israelites out. And yet Moses, as he penned this psalm, is drawn to the reality that it was never this battle between two nations, but this was a group of people coming to battle against you, God. And I think it's important that we always remember that, that when people come against us, and let me say when they come against us, and we haven't done anything to deserve it. There are times when people come against you and you deserve it because of what you did. But how often the world and people come against us. I mean, think of Jesus. What did he ever do wrong? Honestly, what did he ever do wrong? He spoke truth. Healed people, raised people from the dead, and they crucified him for it. What did Paul ever do wrong? I don't know. He went around and spoke truth. People were offended by the truth, and as a result of that, think upon the, what he suffered on behalf of truth. But in the end, Paul knew something, and Jesus knew something. That person's issue, those people's issue, their issue isn't with me. It's with God, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It just means it helps us navigate it in a way that God can be glorified through it. But you, God, look how many times he says you. You have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath and it consumed them like stubble. Down in verse 9, it says, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You, God, you exhaled. You blew your nose. That's what it says there. It was a blast of his nostril. He blew his nose. I don't want to be disrespectful or blasphemous, but that's what it says. You blew your wind, and if you look in other translations, 
you exhale through your nostril, and the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. The enemy plots, the enemy strategizes, the enemy attacks, the enemy has its plans, but in the end, it's the story of the Bible. You can sum up the whole book of Revelation in two words. God wins. That's the end. God wins. The enemy plans and strategizes and thinks that it will find victory, but in the end, God wins. And as a result of that, God's people win. So we see God's personal presence in our lives. We see God's power and protection. And then this poetic psalm moves into just a description of the awe and wonder of God, starting in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful or to be revered in praises and doing wonders? Just the reality of God's personal presence and how he moves on behalf of his people brought Moses and the people to this point of of just being in awe and wonder of God. Who is like you? They've just been abused for hundreds of years by a man who the world looked at as a God. Who is like you, God, that you would even give us a thought or a glance? Who is like you in all the earth? Who is like you among the gods? You could read that next statement that you are glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, and do wonders. You simply stretch out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. And this awe and wonder, it's going to go before us. And all the nations that we're going to come across. And all those people in Canaan, they're going to hear of who you are and they're going to be fearful. And if you doubt if that's true, just jot down, go check out the story of Jericho and Rahab. Because Rahab herself when the spies reached Jericho, said, we know the stories. We heard the stories of how God delivered you from Egypt and how you defeated the kings of Sihon and Og. And we heard the stories. And God's awe and wonder went before him. And so we see again just in verse 16, it says, Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. In verse 17, you will bring them in, speaking of his people, and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made. For your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever. 
And then it says Miriam, Aaron's sister, which, by the way, makes her Moses' sister, too, grabs a timbrel, and she takes the opening part of this psalm and makes it the chorus. And it says she sung to them, which actually, when you, if you can picture in your mind, it's almost like they're singing this song and the women are singing the chorus over the top of it and in response to what's being sung. And so Miriam and the ladies are singing, Sing the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And then we move on. So now this scene has happened. I don't know if they were all just sitting around the side of the lake singing this song. Oh, millions of them, by the way. Or whether they were on their journey. Like, okay, God did that. We're praising him and we're going to praise him along the road. I'm not sure. But what we do know is the story continues. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no Water. They had all the water they needed back at the Red Sea. A little polluted with dead bodies, but... Now when they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. You know what's worse than no water? Finding water you can't drink. That's even worse, right? And so they reach this place. They come across water. They could not drink it, for the water was bitter. Therefore, the name of it is called Mara, which means bitter. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the disease on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you, which rendered rightly in the text would be Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals the first reference to that name that we come across in the Bible. So picture the scene. I mean, let's understand human nature tonight, okay? Let me meddle in your life just a little bit. You got to admit, the parting of the Red Sea, pretty huge miracle. Like if God can part the Red Sea that's pretty astounding what can't God do but pause there because we can go back one book to the very first book of the Bible first verse in the beginning God created creating created there means created something from nothing And if you can get by that verse of the Bible, what can't you get by when it comes to the things of God, right? If he can create something from nothing, 
What can't God do? Anybody? And so you just see this huge miracle. You come off of it, you sing this incredible psalm that speaks of your personal relationship with God and his presence in your life, his power and protection, beyond wonder of who is, who is like you, God. You continue on your journey three days, no water in the desert. By the way, pause physiologically. Three days in the desert with no water, that's about critical juncture. You can't last much longer than three days in the desert, in this desert, without water. And finally, after three days, you come to water. And you can't drink it. And all of a sudden, what God did just three days ago, imparting the Red Sea and delivering you from the Egyptian army, is gone. And they start to complain. And complain there is a mild word for what they did to Moses. And ultimately it says they complained to Moses, but really they're complaining to God. You know that, right? You guys know that so often when we complain about people that God sovereignly put in our life, or circumstances that in God's wisdom he allows for us to be in, when we complain, murmur, and grumble about it, we're really complaining, murmuring, and grumbling to God. We just don't want to direct it to God because we know that would be wrong. So we direct it to a person or a situation, in this case, they complained to Moses. What are we going to drink? We're dying here. What I believe is happening here is God's taking them out of Egypt, but he's got to get Egypt out of them. Like, physically, they're out of Egypt. But inside and spiritually, the waters of Mara was a test and a lesson from God to show them the condition of their heart and the shallowness of their faith in him. I sometimes wonder what this would have looked like if they kept singing that song from the depths of a grateful heart for three days and reached this water. Would it have been bitter? Or maybe God would have taken care of it for them before they ever got there. But there was still... Maybe a little bitterness over the fact that God let them dwell in Egypt. Maybe a defect in their faith. My Bible tells me, I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible tells me that God uses trials and situations and circumstances to help me grow. But the interesting thing about that, God knows where Katie's at in this very moment. 
God doesn't need Katie to tell him the depths of her faith. He doesn't need Katie to tell him where there's cracks maybe in that faith, though there's not. He doesn't need Katie to tell him areas that she needs to grow in. He already knows. He knows it all. And so often he brings us to the water of Mara. So often he brings us to situations and circumstances simply to reveal to us, not to him, but to us, the condition of our hearts, our faith, defects in our walk with him, our ability to choose him over ourselves, and to show us where we need to grow. I honestly believe if there were no bitterness there, then there would have been no bitter water. And no need for a tree to be thrown in. But the reality is, is though they're out of Egypt, Egypt's not out of them. And though we've been saved and set free from the bondage of sin, God still has to work in us to get sin out. So everything we encounter, we know the Bible says God uses all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. Why? You mean God uses trials for good? Yeah. Yeah. James wrote it, consider all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance have its perfect work that you may be mature and complete in Christ Jesus. And if you lack wisdom, ask, and he will give it to you. My Bible teaches that God uses places like Mora not to punish, but to prove. Not to him, but to me. To prove out how perfect, or in my case, not in yours, how imperfect my faith is. He turns up the heat underneath the smelting pot and lets it get harder and harder and harder and harder. Hotter and harder. And the dross from the gold rises to the surface the impurities. It takes heat. It takes fire to heat it up so that the dross comes to the top so that it can be scraped off. And in this day, when they were purifying gold, the guy that was there working, he would be heating it up and scraping off the dross and scraping off the dross. And he would look at it. And the minute he could see the reflection of his face on the surface, he'd pull it off the flame. To go any farther would damage the gold but taking it to the point where he could see his own reflection, which is exactly what the purposes of Mara is all about, that God would turn up the heat and put us in, in over that fire 
that he might in that instant be able to, through that process, see his reflection a little bit more in our lives. And so he brings them to Mara. If you're God, you're going like, really? I just parted the Red Sea three days ago. I get that you might be a little thirsty, but you honestly think I went through the effort of parting the Red Sea to deliver you from the Egyptian army only to lead you out in the wilderness so you die of thirst. Really? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? So they complain. Moses goes to God. And it says he showed Moses a tree. Catch this. If you look in the original meaning... Showed is the weaker translation of that word. The stronger translation is taught. He taught him a tree. Take that home and ponder that one for a minute. In other words, he taught him something through the tree. Or he was going to teach through the tree. So he plants this tree there. By the way, there's only one tree, quote unquote, that grows really in that section of the desert. And it's a palm tree. He didn't call out as a palm tree So I happen to think it might be a special tree. I wonder if it was an acacia from which they fashioned the crown of thorns that was thrust on Jesus' head. I don't know. It was a tree, not a bush. And they take down the tree throw it in the water, and the water becomes sweet to drink. Now I know that many great commentator, you know, spiritualizes that and spins forward to it being a picture of Jesus being crucified on a tree. And I imagine... That's not a stretch from the perspective that the only thing that deals with the bitterness of life rightly and can take this bitter heart and make it sweet and pure is Jesus and the cross of Christ because apart from that, I'm just going to remain this broken down bitter person. But the reality is, is the point of this in the Israelites' life was to challenge them in their willingness to walk with God in faith. For us here today, there is a tree that's been cast in the bitterness of the waters that we are surrounded with. And that is the cross of Christ. And it's to him that we need to turn. And so they drink from this water. And it says right there, He, capital H, tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight. And there should almost be a dash because he's defining what is right in his sight when he says, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. 
For I am the Lord who heals you. Not the waters. He healed the waters. But that's just water. He wants to heal you. He wants to heal you. He is the God who heals. Not just physical. I deal with the physical in this. I would ask you, what's your ailment tonight? Is it emotional? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? There's only one who can heal. Well, I go to a doctor. That's great. And if that doctor is worth his weight in the money that you're going to pay him, he would tell you, he went to school a lot of years and learned a lot of things that he can do and prescribe that will help put your body in a position to heal. But there's one thing he can't do. He can't heal you. No doctor worth their weight in anything would be or would have to admit they don't even know how the body heals itself, really. They just know, if I cut you open here, remove this, and do a little work there and sew you up, Eventually, the body heals itself. And they can talk about the stages and the mechanisms, but ultimately, healing comes from one place, in one place only. That's the throne of God. If it's emotional, go talk to all the counselors you want. And I'm not saying don't, but a counselor who is worth anything will simply bring you to the point of being in touch with the one who can actually heal you. Apart from that, I'm just telling you why you're messed up. But I can't fix you. Right? So, in any other area, he's the one who heals. And then verse 27 is left on its own. After that scene, then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the waters. And we see the nature of life. Sometimes life is bitter, and sometimes life is sweet. And it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not a believer. That's life. The sun shines and the rain falls. And some days the water's bitter and some days there's a light breeze blowing and 70 palm trees and 12 bodies of water and everything's great. And God is the God who provides what you need, and sometimes gives you even what you don't need. As we move towards communion, the interesting thing about this ending part is that word, sure. It's a word that literally means wall. So we have the hall of faith, in Hebrews, and we have the wall of faith here in Exodus 15. There's a, um, a guy by the name of Danny Lehman. Some of you heard me mention him before. He, he wrote a book called Don't Hit the Wall. I think that was the title of it. And it was about a book on faith. Don't hit the wall. 
But he, he approached it from an interesting perspective. He approached it from the perspective of a marathon runner. Danny himself actually ran marathons. And there's a point in every marathon race, even for the elite athletes, where you reach a point they call hitting the wall. It's actually physiologically that point where you burnt up all the reserves you have that produce energy and your body goes through a transition where now you're no longer burning that stored energy. You actually begin to burn muscle in what you need to produce muscle. And in that transition, there is a fatigue and a tiredness that comes across you. And the elite runners have trained themselves that when they hit that wall, they know they just have to push through. If they can just push through this moment in time and keep going and get beyond that transition time, then they're going to be okay. And when you go and watch a marathon, um, like the Boston Marathon or the Chicago Marathon or whatever, the road is littered with people who hit the wall and chose not to go on. It's too much. I quit. I'll try again next time. I'll train harder. I'll eat more carbs the night before. The problem is, is you can train as hard as you want. You can eat as many carbs as you want. But what has to change is your ability to push through the wall. Because no matter how trained you are, if mentally you can't push through the wall, you'll quit. For us as believers, that works for us in the sense of when we look at our faith and how we live out our faith in this life. Every day is an opportunity for us to hit a wall. Every day is an opportunity where something comes up that we don't expect. Every day is an opportunity where our faith is going to be tested to the point where we just want to give up. The question is, do you have the kind of faith that will allow you to press on through? Do you have that kind of faith? The only way we get that faith is by coming to know the God who created something from nothing in a deeper way. How many of us have seen the miracles of God in our life? And yet, in that moment in time, we begin to question God and why he has us here. And like the nation of Israel, he's looking down going, don't you remember when I parted that Red Sea? Don't you remember when I sustained you for three days without water? Do you really think I've done everything I've done in your life only to lead you to this point and abandon you? Or is it just to help you grow and to become more like Jesus?
And if we can understand that, there are plenty of walls out there. Trust me, I've ran into enough of them. But in the end, when we come tomorrow, God is looking for people who will say, I trust in you. And as the ushers come forward and the worship team comes up, let me end with this one thought. We're going to go to the communion table tonight. We were instructed to take communion to remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That Jesus went to a cross and died for you and for me. And let me close with one question. Do you really think the God of this universe sent his son into this world to die on a cross on your behalf that your sins might be forgiven and you might be set free from the bondage of sin and death to take you out of Egypt and lead you into Canaan and give you a land that flows with milk and honey, a land where you didn't plant, a land where you didn't build, but he gave you everything. Do you really think he did this to abandon you today in whatever circumstance and situation we would find ourselves in? I don't think so. But it is a challenge to us to believe. To believe, because if God did that for you, what won't he do for you and for me? Amen.